This sermon this morning is how the mighty have fallen. And you might be familiar with that phrase. It pops up in literature occasionally, even in some contemporary music uh, out in our world. It's a common phrase, but it's also a biblical phrase. Uh, It actually comes from a lament that David sings about the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan. 2 Samuel chapter 1, twice in David's lament, he uses this phrase, how the mighty have fallen. And he's referring to both Saul, his great enemy, and also Jonathan, his closest friend. And that phrase kind of came to me uh, last week as I was thinking about this passage in Judges that we're looking at this morning, and it seems to really fit what we're going to look at this morning in Judges chapter 8. We see the downfall of Gideon in this story, in this passage. We finish up the life of Gideon, and if you know the story, you know that it's uh, not a pretty picture. Things go quite south quite quickly. Uh, And we do see this man, Gideon, who was addressed in the first place when God sent his angel to call him up for this service to deliver the people from the hand of Midian. He referred to him as, O mighty man of valor. And there was some question about whether that name was really reflective of Gideon himself. But nevertheless, the angel called him as a mighty man. And here we see him falling significantly. And so I invite you to open your Bible to Judges chapter 8. As I was thinking about this passage and the story of Gideon as well, I'm always encouraged, strangely, by stories of the fall of great heroes in the Bible. Uh, There are so many of them that we look at and we see them not end well. And I'm encouraged by that because God still uses them. God uses the vilest offenders... You might recognize that phrase from a famous hymn by Fanny Crosby, uh, To God be the glory, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And it's that that enables God, so to speak, to use a person. And he can indeed use the vilest offender. And Gideon, we're going to see this morning, was one of those. He was a vile offender before He was called up to service, and he was a vile offender after as well. And that encourages me because I know myself to be a vile offender. I hope you know that about yourself too. Uh, Paul's words in 2 Timothy when he refers to himself as the chief of sinners, he's not making an objective statement there that he's listed out all of his sins and he knows that there are more of them than everybody else or he's committed more heinous crimes than anybody else. He's a model for us. That's the attitude we are to have about ourselves. Because frankly, I know my sin better than I know any of your sins or anybody else's sins. I know my own sins more clearly, more uh, darkly than I know anybody else's. And so in my own estimation, I am the chief of sinners. And so I marvel every time God does anything good through me. And I hope you do too. I hope you marvel when you see God use you. And you can see a story like this that seems so dark, seems so ugly. And you can put yourself in that dark and ugly place and realize that your sins, your brokenness, your failures doesn't hinder God from using you. 
He uses us in our weakness and in our brokenness. And we're going to see some of that this morning, I think. So let's look at the fall of Gideon. Read the rest of the story here, Judges chapter 8, picking up in verse 4. Last time we saw the great battle, or not much of a battle really, but God routed the Midianite forces with an army of 300 men who didn't really do much of anything. They blew trumpets, they yelled really loud, and they chased the people away. And we're going to continue that story here. But if you're looking at your sermon notes and the outline that's there, I want you to notice the way that every section of this message has as the first word, Gideon. Because this story is very much focused on Gideon and not in a good way. We're going to find Gideon in this story through the rest of his life to be incredibly self-focused, incredibly self-exalting here. And so I've purposed to draw attention to that even in the way that we've outlined the passage. So let's look and see what Gideon is up to here. Verses 4 through the end of the chapter. Judges 8. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zevach and Salmuna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zevach and Salmuna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then. When Yahweh has given Zevach and Salmuna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, Zevach and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Novach and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zevach and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zevach and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Jerez, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zevach and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zevach and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zevach and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tavor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, 
They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As Yahweh lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zevach and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zevach and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you, every one of you. Give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their god, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Sad story. Let's see what we can draw out of here. I hope you noticed a couple of things through the whole story, just looking at the big picture. Notice what's not there. There's not much mention of God in this passage. In fact, the only time that God is mentioned in the story itself is on the lips of Gideon. He speaks the name of God a couple of times, and we'll come to those and question, what exactly is he up to here? But the narrator, the one telling the story, doesn't actually refer to God being involved in what we see going on here. Whereas in the previous story, we saw God all over the place. We saw God acting and taking credit for what was going on, for the victory that was won belonged to him and not to Gideon. But here, we see an absence of God, a significant absence of God throughout the story until the very end 
when the narrator is looking back and kind of summarizing what's going on. So we'll see what the significance of that might be, but let's take this apart and draw out what we can from some of the details here. So going back to verses 4 through 9, we see Gideon rejected by Sukkoth and Penuel. So we begin the story just crossing over the Jordan River, so moving over to the east side of the Jordan River, crossing over, moving outside the territory of Israel eventually. But first we stop at a couple of cities here that are still within the land of Israel, Sukkoth and Penuel. The 300 men are still with him. He hasn't lost a man in the pursuit of the Midianite army. And yet they are exhausted. And one of the questions that we need to be asking here is, why in the world is Gideon driving his army so hard? He's relentless in pushing them on. And we'll see what his motives are here as the story unfolds. But notice when he stops at Sukkoth, he wants to get supplies for his men to help them keep going. And so he makes a request of the people of Sukkoth. But notice the way he says this in verse 5. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zevach and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Not we are, not they are, I am. And this is our first hint that what's really going on with Gideon is a very personal issue. He's not chasing after these kings any longer because he's concerned about delivering the people of Israel from the hand of Midian. And he's not concerned so much to, talk, to think about giving glory to God in this situation. He's got a personal beef with these folks. And that's what becomes clear as the story unfolds. So he makes this request and the men of Sukkoth, these fellow Israelites, reject him and say, nope, not going to help you. They're afraid, it seems, that Gideon can't get the job done. They'd have no confidence in Gideon's ability to finish the mop-up operation. And so their concern is, if we help you and then you fail, then the Midianites are going to come and attack us and punish us for helping you. And so they want to stay out of it. Well, as it turns out, they are doomed either way because Gideon is going to punish them because of their refusal to help. In verse 7, he responds to them and he threatens them sharply. And we might wonder if we didn't know the rest of the story when he says he's going to flail their flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and briars. Is he he using a figure of speech? Is he kind of saying, well, I'm going to come back and I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you that I've got what it takes? Or is he being quite literal? And of course, we're going to see he was being quite literal in a very terrifying sense. And so he threatens them, and then he moves on to the next city, and he tries one more time to get some supplies and refreshment for his soldiers. He stops at the city of Penuel, and he asks them the same thing, and they respond the same same way. They've got no confidence in Gideon, and they don't want to get involved. And so he threatens them as well. Penuel is a city without a wall. They, they're not, they don't have a defensive wall surrounding the city. So instead, to protect them, they've got a tower that's built so they can have soldiers stationed on the tower so that they can see a far distance off. If an invading army is coming in, the people on the tower can see them and then marshal the forces to protect the city. And so he says, I'm going to come back here and I'm going to tear this tower to the ground. I'm going to destroy it. Well, then we go back and we kind of move the story back to focusing in on the Midianite kings and Gideon's pursuit in verses 10 through 12. Gideon captures the Midianite kings. 
He captures the two Midianites, and what we see in verse 10 is they, they're, they've camped out in a place called Karkor. Now, if we were to have a map here and kind of look at the geography a little bit, Karkor is actually a Midianite city. So this force has escaped the land of Israel. They've gotten out of the territory of Israel completely, gone out beyond the borders of Israel on the east side of the Jordan, that territory that... They, uh, that, that a couple of tribes of Israel received as an allotment of land under Moses back in the book of Numbers. Uh, and so here they go to the city of Karkor. Now, if you were to plot this on a map, you could find that Karkor is about 81 and a half miles away from Penuel. So think about that. Gideon and his forces are already exhausted, traveling overnight on foot, stop at Sukkoth, stop at Penuel, can't get refreshment, can't get supplies, and then Gideon says, we're going to go on anyway, and pushes them another 81 and a half miles on foot overnight. No rest, it seems. But Gideon is driven to get them. He wants to get these kings, and so he's not going to give up the pursuit at all. Not going to slow down, going to keep on pushing and pushing and pushing. In verse 10, it's where we find out how big the force was. Originally, they had about 135,000 soldiers, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east. And God, if you remember the story from last time, God caused them to kill each other so that 120,000 of them died on their own swords. 15,000 are left. Now, at this point, you've got to recognize Gideon and his forces are still way outnumbered and outmatched. It's still 300 versus 15,000. 300 men who are hardly trained for war versus 15,000, that that's their profession. These are Midianite, Amalekite, Eastern professional soldiers. So they're way outnumbered. Gideon doesn't care. He's going to drive on here and keep going. And he, he gets them. He captures the two kings. He doesn't care about the rest of the army, it seems. He chases them off. They flee and they get away. But he's got the two kings. And that's what's important to him. So he captures the, the Midianite kings, and then he takes them back by way of Sukkoth and Penuel. So Gideon, in verses 13 to 17, Gideon avenges himself against Sukkoth and Penuel. He threatened them, and now he's going to deliver on his threat. He's got the two kings of Midian in tow, and he drags them into these cities and shows them off. says, here they are. I did it. I got them. You didn't help. And I told you I was going to flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and briars. And that's exactly what he does. We see that unfold in verse 15. Now, when he comes into Sukkoth initially, he captures a young man of Sukkoth. Notice that. That's exactly the same word used for what he does to the Midianite kings. This is the first example we get in the book of Judges of Israelite-on-Israelite violence, where Gideon, the judge, the man used by God to deliver the Israelites from the hand of Midian, has turned and attacked one of his own people, one of his own kinsmen. He seizes this young man, maybe he was a scribe or some young official of the city, but he demands from him a list of the names of the leaders of the city of Sukkoth. And I want you to notice the mention specifically of elders. So Gideon's got 77 men on this target list of his that he's going to punish, and it includes the elders of the city. Now, 
Those are lay people, those are leaders of Israelite leaders of this particular city, but don't miss the implications of the word elder. Now, I am an elder of Alfred Allman Bible Church, and I'm only 35. But some of these elders were surely elderly. And look what Gideon does to them. He takes elderly men and beats them with thorny vines. I want you to, to feel the weight of Gideon's depravity at this point. How far gone he is that he could abuse violently elderly men just because they refused him and rejected him. This is no sense of, you know, you had a biblical covenantal obligation to support me and you didn't and so I'm going to punish you. This is nothing more than a personal vendetta. This is vengeance in the worst possible way. And the Hebrews worded in such a way in verse 16 that it's probable that the implication is that he beat them all to death with his own hands. He goes on to the next city, Penuel. He threatened to destroy their tower, and he does that. But if you look at verse 17 again, specifically says, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Gideon has become a very violent man. If you read the early part of the story, you wouldn't see this coming. Gideon seems so mild-mannered, so weak, so frail, so unassuming. And yet now, he's turned into a monster. And he's going against his own people. He slaughters an entire city for his own personal reasons. This is the ugly, ugly picture of a man whose power has gotten to his head, it seems. We press on into verses 18 to 21, and we return to the issue of the Midianite kings. And Gideon avenges himself against the Midianite kings. And this is where we find that Gideon has a personal stake in all of this. Verse 18 gives us the beginning of the clue. He asked them a weird question. I hope you see the weirdness of this. Verse 18, Then he said to Zevach and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tavor? Well, they're dead. They're in their graves, presumably. What do you want to know, Gideon? He's not really looking for a plot on a map. He's not really looking to see if you got them hiding somewhere or did you really kill them? No, he knows they're dead. And so what is he asking here? I think he's really just raising the real issue for us on the table. He's really saying, this is about the men you killed at Tavor. Now, we've not read anything about that up to this point in Judges. What we have read about is how the Midianites would come into the land of Israel during harvest time every year for the past seven years, and they would steal the crop so that the people of Israel could not harvest their own crops. This is the first indication that we get that the Midianites didn't just do that. They also were violent. They also killed some people. And we shouldn't be really surprised by that. But this is the first explicit mention. And so it's likely that at at some point within the last seven years, on one of their annual raids, they killed these particular men that Gideon is referring to. Now notice their answer. It's also a little puzzling. How do they respond? Again, they don't tell him where the, where the burial plot is or any of that kind of information. They describe them, sort of. 
They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. That's not a throwaway line, I don't think. In the book of Judges, the issue of kingship becomes really big in the later chapters of the book. This is the first time that it's actually mentioned explicitly. And so we should kind of get our ears attuned to the issue of kingship. It'll become much more prominent from here on out in the book of Judges. But this is the first notice we've had of the idea of kingship and what's going on there. So they basically are saying, you know, those men we killed, they, they kind of look like you. And you look like the son of a king. You have a royal bearing about you. Now we might wonder, are they flattering him? Maybe trying to get out of trouble? I mean, he's got them in chains right now. He's definitely got the upper hand against these kings. But they're saying, you know, you have a royal bearing. And so did they when we, when they, when we killed them. Now, you might think... Okay, that says something positive about Gideon. He's got the bearing of a king. He's royal. But remember who's talking here. This is the Midianite kings. And so they're basically saying, you look like a Canaanite king. And remember what they have seen him do. He's taken a small force and overcome their larger force. That's what a great pagan king would do. And then they've also seen him slaughter his own people. As he dragged them through Sukkoth and Penuel, they watched as he abused and killed his own people. That's what Canaanite kings do. That's what pagan kings do. And so they're basically saying, you know, you look like a Canaanite king. Now for a judge of Israel, that's not a compliment. That's not something we want to see in the leaders that God uses. But nevertheless, God has used Gideon in the midst of all of this insanity. And so they they compare him to a king, and what we're going to see is that Gideon is very much like a Canaanite king. He is very much like that. He has conformed himself to the culture around him. And if we remember, his family was a group of idolaters. They were worshiping Baal at the beginning of the story, and we're going to see them descend into idolatry before the story is over. And so it is here that they, can, they, they may be trying to flatter him, but here he lands the blow and tells them what they probably didn't know at this point in verse 19. They were my brothers. They were my brothers. And so really what's motivating Gideon through this point of the story is, again, not a concern for rescuing the people of Israel from the hand of Midian. It's not a concern to bring God the glory. It's a concern to get back at these people for killing his brothers. It's about personal revenge. That's what's driving Gideon to drive his army. That's what's motivating him to push so hard to get these guys. It's all about personal revenge. And so then he swears an oath. And it's a weird thing for him to do at this moment, but he does. He invokes the name of the God of Israel as Yahweh lives If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Now, I draw your attention to that because this is a point where Gideon is swearing an oath that indicates he cares nothing for obeying God. Here's how I know that. 
God had commanded the people of Israel, if you think back to the book of Judges, uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua, or you think back to the Mosaic Law, they were commanded that when they come into the land of Canaan and they take the land that God was giving them, they were to devote to destruction the Canaanite peoples. They were to leave none alive, especially the leaders. And so Gideon is basically saying here, if you hadn't killed my brothers, I would disobey the Mosaic Law and not have you killed. That tells us that Gideon is not thinking in any way about pleasing God or obeying God in this story at this point. He is motivated by vengeance and not a desire to obey the law of God or to please God in any way. And so he would have saved them alive, but they murdered his brothers, so he's going to kill them. And verse 20, again, another oddity of the story, he wants to hand off the honor of doing this to his firstborn son, probably his only son at this point in the story and in his life, his young son, Jether. And so he says, you rise up and kill him. Now, what's going on here? Probably two things from Gideon's vantage point. One, he's wanting to pass on the honor to his son to actually execute these kings. That's a very Canaanite thing to do. Uh, to give your son the honor and the prestige of killing your enemies. But secondly, the other side of the coin is he really wants to shame these Midianite kings by having a youngster kill them. The word young man is very flexible. It can refer to a 12-year-old or a 20-something-year-old. So given what's going on here, Jether's probably on the younger end of that spectrum. And so it's understandable his response. He refuses to do so. He doesn't even pull his sword out. And if you think about it, this isn't even his sword, probably. This is a sword that he would have picked up from the Midianite army during the rout that happened. So this young man, however old he actually is, has probably never even used a sword before. He's a youngster, has no experience with this kind of thing, and his father has just told him to kill two grown men who are kings. He's way out of his element. But also the reason that's given here for why he didn't act is because he was afraid. And then we see that the apple does not fall far from the tree. If we remember Gideon, at least in his earlier days, he was full of fear all the time. And it seems that his son has picked up that trait from him. Interestingly, we don't see that fear plaguing Gideon anymore. He doesn't fear God or man, it seems, in this particular unfolding of events. But nevertheless, he refuses. And so in verse 21, the two kings mock Gideon. They find this an opportunity to stick it to him a little bit. Verse 21, then Zevach and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. One writer kind of paraphrased that in a way that was helpful. He's basically saying strength is the measure of a man. So prove yourself a man, Gideon. Show us that you're not a little boy like your son. And so he does. He pulls his sword and he executes the two kings of Midian. And then he begins taking their spoil. Uh, He takes some crescent ornaments worn around the necks of their camels. And if you remember back to the way the uh, Midianite army was described uh, earlier on, their camels covered the ground like the sand that is on the seashore. So this is a lot uh, going on here for uh, Gideon. So as we press on into verses 22 and 23, we see kind of a natural response in some sense from the men of Israel. So the people of Israel see Gideon 
kill these two kings. So now Gideon has the status of a king killer. Well, that must make him qualified to lead the people of Israel. Uh, So they say, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. Set up a dynasty over us. We want to see you and your line rule over us. Note the reason that they say this in verse 22. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Exactly the thing that God was seeking to avoid the people of Israel giving themselves or one of their own credit for the victory, he needs to get the credit. He deserves the glory for this victory, and yet the people of Israel, even with a 300-man force, still look at themselves and look at Gideon and give him the credit instead of God. There's no mention here of God's giving them the victory. It's just about Gideon. And so they want him to rule. And then Gideon's response is that he refuses to rule over Israel. Verses 22 and 23, basically, Gideon refuses to rule over Israel. And we might think, okay, good job, Gideon. That seems right. If you look at his response again in verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Even though it turns out one of his sons will rule over the people of Israel, one who's not yet born at this point. But nevertheless... His intentions sound good, and then the last line clinches it for us, it seems. Yahweh will rule over you. That sounds very pious. That sounds like the exact right thing to say. But then everything that unfolds after this shows that Gideon basically rules over the people of Israel. Even though he said with his mouth that God should rule over you, I won't rule over you, what actually happens is he rules over them. He acts just like a king. But again, not an Israelite king. Not the way that an Israelite king was supposed to behave according to the Mosaic legislation in Deuteronomy 17. None of that. In fact, everything against that specifically. He's very much like a Canaanite king over the people of Israel. So he says he won't. He says Yahweh shall rule over you, but then Gideon rules over Israel. And verses 24 to 32 show the way that he does that. First, verse 24, he makes a request of them. He demands them, he demands for them to give him the spoil, to turn over their spoil from the victory. Give us your gold earrings specifically. And they agree. They give him their spoil. That's the kind of thing that a subject, that subjects would do to their king. They would give tribute. And so it is, that's what they're kind of doing here. It's hard not to see a little reminiscence here of what happened many, many, many years before this event where another leader of Israel asked for the people to give him golden earrings that they had taken from another foreign force. Aaron, Moses' brother, high priest over Israel at Mount Sinai while Moses is gone 40 days and 40 nights up on top of the mountain collecting the law of God. They, the people of Israel, say, make us gods of gold. And Aaron says, okay, give me your golden earrings and let's do this thing. And then you know what happens next. Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. It's hard not to see what what Gideon's doing here as exactly what Aaron did there. He takes the gold, golden earrings, and then the narrator gives us the weight of the golden earrings in verse 26, 1,700 shekels. That amounts to about 42 pounds of gold. That's 
heavier than my three-year-old daughter. So a toddler's weight of gold. That's a lot. He takes it, and then he takes all the rest of the stuff too. Crescent ornaments, pendants, purple garments worn by the kings, collars that were around the necks of their camels, these ornamented collars. He takes all of that. That's royal spoil. The, the purple garments worn by the kings of, Idian, uh, kings of Midian. Now Gideon owns all of that. That's his. Because he's a king. For all intents and purposes, he's acting like a king here. And he's taking the wealth. He's accumulating the wealth of a king. Even though Deuteronomy 17 says to kings of Israel, don't accumulate wealth for yourself. So he does that. And then he, what does he do with it? He makes an ephod. Now, an ephod is a chest piece, breastplate kind of thing worn over the cloak of the high priest. So there's only supposed to be one ephod among the people of Israel. It's for the high priest. If you remember, maybe you've had a, seen a picture of this kind of thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a breastplate that's worn over the robe. It's got uh, the 12, 12 jewels on the front of it, one jewel for each of the tribes of Israel, uh, to rep, so that the priest is representing the people when he goes into the tabernacle or the temple ultimately and worships God and brings the sacrifices. He's bearing the people of Israel on his heart. But there's a more, Im- more important, there's another significant usage and purpose of the ephod. There's a pocket inside the cloak, a pocket of sorts that holds the urim and thummim. We don't know exactly what those things are, some kind of objects that the priest would use to get guidance from God. So the idea would be, it seems that the priest, when the people of Israel need to know, should we do something or should we not do something, they'd pull out these objects, the Urim and Thummim, and they would uh, flip them or roll them or throw them or something. And how they landed would tell them, God says yes, God says no, God says nothing. And we see that technically the high priest is the one who has possession of those and he's the one who should use them. But... Later on in the history, we will see a king like David using it. We'll see him pick it up on his travels, even before he's king, actually. Once he's anointed, he picks it up and takes it with him when he's on the run from Saul. And you'll see him inquiring of the Lord. And that phrase usually refers to using the Urim and Thummim. So he's going to go on his journey and he's going to say, Should I go up against the Philistines or not? How does God answer him? The arrangement of the Urim and Thummim on the ground, it seems. Some question about that. So, all that, to, all that background to say, it seems like what Gideon is up to. Why does he make an ephod? It seems that as unofficial ruler of Israel, he wants to have access to God's guidance. And again, that seems very pious. That seems like a good thing. So he's basically saying, I want an ephod here in my city so that I can ask God, should I do this or should I do that? And again, we say, well, that seems like a good thing. He wants God to guide him, except that the law specifically says, don't do that. If you want that kind of guidance, you go to the priest and use the one ephod that's housed at the tabernacle, which is at this point... Somewhere in the land of Israel, probably Shiloh, but we haven't seen it mentioned yet in the book of Judges. It'll show up in a bit. Um, But it seems like Gideon is wanting an alternative way of finding God's will. 
And that is always a no-no for God's people. God tells his people how to consult him, how to find guidance from him. And when you start looking for other ways to do that, you find yourself in lots and lots of trouble. So it seems like that's what Gideon is up to, but that's not what happens. Whatever his intentions were, we read this line in the middle of verse 27, and all Israel hoard after it there. Now, if that's all it said, we might say, well, Gideon had good intentions, and he was doing a good thing or well-meaning thing, and then the people of Israel just misunderstood, and they came, and they worshipped this thing. And it says they hoard after it. That means that they became adulterous in their covenant relationship with God. They broke faith with God. They broke their promise to God not to worship other gods. And instead, they're worshiping this thing, this object that Gideon has made with his own hands. And so they're worshiping this thing. And then it says, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Gideon is specifically implicated in all of this. So we're back to square one. The story of Gideon began with Gideon and his family worshipping idols, worshipping Baal, the Canaanite god. And here, instead of going back to that, at least initially, he makes his own god. I'm not sure which is worse, but we've come full circle. After God has used him to accomplish victory over the Midianites, Gideon returns, and not only returns, but leads the people of Israel into idolatry, apostasy, spiritual adultery. He's the first judge that we see that is so broken. We saw at the beginning he was a part of the problem in the first place. And by the end of the story, God used him, but then he still remains a part of the problem and in fact instigates the problem. He's the one who pushes the cycle forward. He's the one who ends up driving them back into idolatry. Gideon is not my hero. Nevertheless, We do get this line in verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. If you read the story of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, you will never read again of the Midianites being the villain against the people of Israel. You won't read that again. It's at this point that they're done as far as their opposition against God's people. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Note that. It's the last time you're going to see that in the book of Judges. The earlier judges, most of them, you'll read that line that God grants rest to the land for a certain period of time. No more. No more. There will be judges that God will use to bring relief to the people of Israel, to to lift them out from under the oppression of somebody, but he will not go so far as to provide this kind of rest any longer. We carry on to find the, the death note of Gideon and note in verse 29 that he's referred to as Jerubbaal again, his nickname connected to his conflict with Baal. And then we learn in verse 30 that Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. That's another flouting of the Mosaic law, particularly for kings of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Kings of Israel are not supposed to multiply their wives. Well, Gideon has many wives and has 70 sons. And then, it just gets worse. I I hope you're ready for this. It just gets worse. Verse 31, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, 
also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech, or Abimelech, if you like. It's two Hebrew words smooshed together. Abi, which means my father, Melech, which means king. So note this, Gideon named his own son, my father is king. I think that tells us what Gideon thought about himself. As much as he said, I will not rule over you, Yahweh will rule over you. At the end of the day, he names his own son, my father is king. He thought of himself very much as a king and he acted like it. He multiplied wives, had concubines, at least one. And this Shechemite concubine will feature in the next story, in the background at least, in chapter 9. But Shechem was a mixed town. Israelites couldn't drive out the Canaanites from there, and it's likely, we'll see more about this next week, but it's likely that this Shechemite concubine is a pagan. So not only has Gideon married many Israelite wives, he's also taken a foreign wife, secondary wife, concubine, as it were. And that's going to produce all manner of chaos that we'll see unfold in chapter 9. So then he died in a good old age (laughs) and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Thus ends the story of Gideon, but not his legacy. We'll look more at that next time. But then we get verses 33 to 35 that kind of give an epilogue about the people of Israel in general. Israel forgets Yahweh and Gideon. Soon as Gideon died, verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. We'll talk more about Baal Berith next week. But notice that they abandoned their worship of the ephod. They basically, after Gideon's gone and he's got no more connection to this ephod, they say, we don't need to worship the ephod anymore. Let's just go back to worshiping Baal, particularly Baal Berith, who is the god of Shechem, which we'll see next week. So everything is going to center around Shechem pretty much and as the story unfolds next week. So they made Baal Berith their God. And then verse 34 says, And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh, their God. They forgot Him. And we've already seen evidence of that. He's the one who won the victory, but they don't give Him credit. They don't give Him glory. They forgot Him completely. And then the narrator makes sure that we know that, that He's the one who deserves all the credit. Yahweh, their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Not just the Midianites. But God gets all the credit, all the glory for all of their deliverances. The narrator makes sure that we know that by the end of this story. Because Gideon doesn't remember it and the people of Israel don't remember it. But you and I as readers need to remember it and give credit where credit is due. But they also forgot Gideon. They did not show steadfast love, loyalty, commitment. They didn't honor the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon. Um, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So the last word on Gideon is to remember, yes, he did good to the people of Israel. God used him to bring deliverance from the hand of Midian. And so he did do good to the people of Israel, even though he ends up doing very bad to them. But the narrator 
gives this mixed legacy of Gideon at the very end. He wants to pull down and focus on the good that's there instead of all the horrific things. And that probably is instructive for us, too. As much as I have tried to belabor and emphasize the badness of all that's happened here and how Gideon has fallen, we need to remember that even in the midst of all that terrible stuff, all that horrible actions by Gideon and the people, God is still at work doing good for His people. In the midst of bad, in the midst of loss, God is still good. God is still doing good, even in the midst of all of this ugly. And so that's one thing we can draw out from this story. But more particularly, the main theme that comes out of this story is really about vengeance. We see a negative example here of Gideon getting vengeance against his own uh, hurt. For us as believers, for us as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, the implication is that we should really be trusting Jesus for vengeance and also for victory. If you're looking at your sermon notes and you see three blanks, there's only two words, I made a change. It's okay. Trusting Jesus for vengeance and for victory uh, is what we want to focus on as we conclude our time this morning. Romans 12, 19 is where we can begin thinking about this. Romans 12, 19 instructs us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 32 there, a verse that Gideon should have known if he was reading his Bible at all. He had that line in his Bible, but he either didn't read it, didn't know it, or disregarded it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so the call for us is to recognize, we we should recognize that at times we are truly victims. People do bad things that hurt us. It happens. People who are Christians and people who are not. We are, and you may be very specifically, a victim. And this is how you should respond as a victim. This is the instruction for you. It's not all of it. It's not everything we need to say about that. But the promise here is that God is the one who will execute vengeance. He is the one who will make things right. No matter what's been done to you, no matter what ways you've been hurt, God is the one who will make it right. His justice is perfect. And what that means is the person who hurts you will not get one drop of punishment more than he deserves or less than he deserves. Justice will be perfect in God's hands, but in my hands, in your hands, it's never going to be. It's either too extreme or not enough. And so the call is for us to trust God for vengeance against those who have hurt us. Let me remind you specifically that it's not just God in a general sense. It's Jesus 
who executes vengeance. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Paul writes, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. When Jesus returns, He will execute perfect justice against those who do not obey the gospel, those who do not respond to the gospel in faith, and those who disobey God. And so the call for us as believers is what do we do in the meantime for waiting for Jesus to provide that perfect justice? What do we do in the meantime? Well, the warning of this story to us The warning of the story of Judges 8, of the Gideon story, is beware of moving from the victim to become the villain. Gideon was a victim, really and truly. His brothers were murdered. His brothers were murdered. He was left behind as a victim of that violence. He was truly a victim, and he took vengeance in his own hand and became the villain. And the call for you and me And those of us who have been abused or hurt or victimized is to beware the danger of moving on over to become the villain. We have a tendency to shift over and even do the the very same things that have been done against us. And the warning here and the call for us is to beware of doing that. So what do we do instead? We follow Jesus' instruction in Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. And again, this is not all that needs to be said, but it's significant. Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Those may be among the hardest words Jesus ever spoke to his disciples, to his followers. And yet, that is the call on our lives. Well, finally, if we're thinking about vengeance in the midst of all of this, we need to think about the ultimate victory. It's not only about vengeance, it's about the victory that's been won. In the story of Gideon, the people forgot that God is the one who won the victory. And we need to remember that as well as we think about being victims or villains. God is the one who wins the victory. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, we can reflect on a few verses there. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 reminds us that we have a great enemy who has yet to be vanquished ultimately. Verse 26, chapter 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Lots of other enemies that we could talk about. The devil, the power of sin, wicked people. 
But ultimately, the great enemy that is always against us and always stands before us is death itself. And that enemy is the last one to be destroyed. We still look forward to that aspect of Jesus' victory. Nevertheless, the victory has already been won. We do not yet experience the benefits of that victory over death, but we will. Moving down in 1 Corinthians 15 to verse 50, I'd like to read 50 to 57, just to remind you of this glorious truth and the nature of the victory over death that Jesus has won. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality." When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate victory that we look forward to. Resurrection. That is our great hope. That is the way that Jesus has conquered death and will provide the ultimate, final, eternal, lasting victory over death. We will all stand on that day and sing this taunt of death in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? It's gone. Jesus has won the victory and death has no more power. And so now, in the meantime, as we wait, we must all realize that we are all both victims and villains. We have been sinned against and we have sinned against others. Most egregiously, most blatantly and most horrifically against God Himself. And He has allowed Himself to be victimized. Rightfully, rightfully, God could avenge Himself against us. We are all, by nature, His enemies. But, thanks be to God, the righteous judge... He chose to love His enemies. He chose to accomplish victory for us, not against us. The question this morning is, are you on the right side? Do you continue in your rebellion against God? Are you still His enemy today? Or has God changed your allegiance? Has God brought you over to His side by His grace? Has He transformed you from His enemy to His friend? Has He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness where you were all born and where we all have our natural citizenship into the kingdom of His beloved Son? If you are still His enemy this morning, but you're beginning to see 
His love. You're beginning to see Him as worthy of your allegiance. Lay down your sword. Stop opposing Him. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've lived out your rebellion against God for how many years, it's not too late. If you want to enjoy the certainty of victory over death that we've been talking about, if you want to enjoy the newness of life that God offers to His children right now, I urge you to trust Jesus right now. Admit your rebellion and renounce it. Renounce it. Look to Jesus as your only hope of life, your only hope of happiness, and as worthy of your wholehearted devotion. And receive forgiveness for all of your sins because of His death on the cross. See His life of obedience counted to your account. See His death paying for your sins and failures. And see His resurrection as the assurance of eternal life, freedom from the enslaving power of sin now, and the promise of complete separation from sin in the future. Then and forever, you can sing with David the words of Psalm 54, 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. To God be the glory. Would you pray with me?